Coming to you from the studios at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time we have microphones in our faces and you are listening in. (laughs) And so this month, we are so excited to have with us three powerhouse women leaders, black women leaders, and we are talking black girl magic today. Hello, somebody. Amen. Yeah. Hello. Hello. And so on the phone with us, we have the inimitable Reverend Tracy Blackman. She is the executive minister of Justice and Witness for the United Church of Christ and also the pastor of Christ the King UCC in Florissant, Missouri. Hello, Tracy. Hi. How are you? Uh, <laughs> we are doing great, and we're really excited to have you in this conversation. Thank you so much for agreeing to chime in with us today. And in studio, we have the inimitable Reverend Leslie Copeland Toon. Hello, Leslie. Hello. She, yeah, she's the, to be here. Oh, thank you. She's the executive director of Ecumenical Advocacy Days. And actually, we probably know her from many different ways that, that her hands have actually helped to lead the movement over the years. But just most recently, she was she really led an incredible Ecumenical Advocacy Day conference this year. Hello, woo woo. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. And then we also have the inimitable Reverend Sakina. Hamlin. And so, Reverend Hamlin, so, so great to have you here. She is the Director of Faith Affairs at the Center for Responsible Lending, y'all. Great to be here. Thank you so much. Yeah. So, we are here to talk Black Girl Magic. This podcast will be dropping on June 1st. So, it's kind of like we're walking into the summer and people are, it's light, hopefully, you know, there hasn't been any major things that happen in the universe. And, or maybe if there are, this can be a little bit of an escape. (laughs) But also, you know, whenever we start talking black women, there's both the magic and there's also the strength, the reality that we have overcome a lot, right? So what we're going to talk today is, you know, we're going to talk to these three powerhouse women of African descent, um, who are dear sisters in the struggle to come together for a deep, honest, vulnerable, as much as we can be, conversation and candid about Black Girl Magic. And we'd love to hear from you. Just tweet to us. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. So the hashtag Black Girl Magic was created by Kashawn Thompson in 2013. I didn't know that when I, I found it yeah. out when I did the research. I thought that it kind of came to be in the 2016, like in light of Black Lives Matter and all. But no, it was 2013. And she started it in order to celebrate the magic of Black womanhood in the face of all of the stereotypes that actually kind of flood our way, the Mammy, the Jezebel, the Sass, and the strong Black woman, all these things that in many ways dehumanize us and don't help people to see us as who we are. But it's funny because lately, I have to say, I have, we have been on fire. (laughs) We have, we've been on some fire. Have we not? Like, you know, we have the women of Black Panther. Hello, somebody. That's right. Right. So yes, yes, Wakanda. We just crossed our arms up in here. So Wakanda forever. Shonda Rhimes with her TV storytelling empire. Hello, Ava DuVernay, Oprah. You know, I'm, I'm in just one universe right here. Right. Like, but then also Bay at Coachella. (laughs) Hello, somebody. Um, You know what? I've had a sense recently that like right now 
is our time. Like mm-hmm. this is our time. And it is for such a time as this, right? So mm-hmm. speaking of black girl magic, one word, hashtag Stacey Abrams. That's <laughs> <laughs> one word. Absolutely. Stacey Abrams, yes. y'all. Yes. So she's the first ever African-American woman who is a major party candidate for governor and it's made me think, y'all, so what would the world look like if black women ruled the world? Can we go there? Can we just start with that question? <laughs> I think it would probably look much more inclusive oh. um, because black women care for everybody. I think we have a history of seeing possibilities in people instead of problems. Yeah. And so I think it would look a lot more like the kingdom of God if black women were in charge. Wow. Go on. And I think one thing that she even modeled in her campaign that, as I understand it, Freedom Road does as well, is the embracing of our real, for real, down-home stories. Uh, Even when they tried to shame her Mm -hmm. with the amount of debt that she had, she turned that into a teachable moment. Go on! As it relates to, you know, what is it to be in debt? How many people have or are strapped with student loan debt? What is it to be a caregiver as a Black female and care for your parents and Mm -hmm. and care for that niece or nephew or what have you? You know, Mm -hmm. How can we use what is our, um, for real, real life experiences to then be that which uh, thrusts us, if you will, into advocacy and make sure that people won't shame you for that. It does not disqualify us from seeking election or being up front in, in whatever march. It actually is that which gives us those credentials, if you will. Yeah. We know what it feels like. And so it would be more inclusive because we would embrace those stories and use that to be the fire Shut up in our bones. That Mm. makes us do the work. Wow. Okay, so we got some preachers here. (laughs) (laughs) I'm serious. I'm ready to go go to the altar. How about about you, Tracy? That's real. I would encapsulate what I have heard my sister share in answer to your question by saying we would have a nation of truth-tellers. Black women are truth-tellers. And that's why we're able to confront even the issues that may be uh, not as they should be in our lives, we'd rather tell the story uh, mm-hmm. for the purpose of saving someone else the pain, right? Mm-hmm. Walk through it in more public ways than we see in politics or even in our social settings. So if this world were run by black women, and I don't think that day is far off. I just read an article mm-hmm. this morning in Glamour magazine where this month's issue is highlighting the fact that 18 black women are running for office in yes. Alabama. Yes, in I Alabama. Just in Alabama? Um, in Alabama. Wow. 18 black women uh, are in this magazine just kicking it because they're running for office. When we look at the upset that happened in Alabama to unseat Roy Moore, to yes. put Doug Jones in place, right? That was a movement largely led by black Yes. Uh, when you go and look at Stacey Abrams and the people who have been pushing her and supporting her, Higher Heights was a, a big part of that, which mm-hmm. is a black electoral company run by black women. So this whole truth-telling notion of what this nation could look like if we finally tell the truth, mm-hmm. and that is not a new thing, 
for black women. You can go all the way back to Sojourner's Truth and Ain't I a Woman, right? Hello. Yes. Just embracing all of what I have to deal with as a part of that narrative. I think we'd be better off for it. That is really excellent. You know, I'm just thinking about the truth piece. I just came from a pilgrimage. I just led 22 people through a pilgrimage of the story of the control and confinement of African bodies on U.S. soil. Okay, so now we're going deep now, right? Mm -hmm. But we started in Montgomery at the Legacy Museum and also the Lynching Monument, moved to Mississippi, Memphis, and then ended in Ferguson. One of the big themes that came out of that time is that there is no way that our nation can heal until we face the truth. And not right. just not just the general truth, okay, there was lynching, okay, we had slavery, but really the truth is in the details, in the storytelling. And that, I think that honestly, the storytelling piece is something that I think that we we do well. That's actually part of our tradition. We have an oral tradition and telling the truth is necess- is actually a necessary part of telling our stories. You know, when I thought about this question for myself, I thought about how my grandmother would go the distance. So what black women's rulership would look like is going the distance in order to lead. My grandmother once stayed up all night long, literally all night sewing a costume for my mom for Cinco de Mayo in South Philly (laughs) in the 50s. Like there were there were no Mexicans there, but whatever. It's like this was a class project. And so she and it turned out my mom was the only person who came to the class with a costume on. You know, my grandmother had that kind of love. And that is the kind of love. It's it is self-giving. It is going the distance. And what would our world look like if our leaders actually went the distance. Yeah. We think about our Congress right now. Hello. You know, not really going the distance so much. And caring, I think, that sacrificial kind of love, I think, yeah. of when I think of black women in ways that have not always been helpful or healthy for us. But that way, like your grandmother staying up all night, that mm-hmm. just we've got to put our hand to the plow and just get it done, you know, yes. and whatever it takes. And so in some ways, I think that's good. Of course, the, the flip side of it is that we haven't always taken care of ourselves the way we needed to. That's for real. You may know that I found out that the KKK burned a cross in front of my grandparents' house. No. Talking about the butler. I was talking about the movie The Butler. Uh-huh. And I was saying because, remember in the movie, they spit on the people sitting in at the lunch counter? Yes. So I knew that my mom did something with the civil rights movement. But I'm like, nobody spit on her because she, you know, that would not have gone well. <laughs> kind of thing. I was just like, but I knew she'd never been to jail or anything. And so I was like, yeah, I was trying to figure out. You know, did people, somebody spit on you? She's like, no. They, like, would shove them and push them and call them names and stuff like that. So, in Columbia at Woolworths. So, your mom was a part of that? Yes. Yes. What? So, she sat in at the lunch. So, um, <laughs> but so, um, but, so I was saying, she's like, no, they, you know, pushed us, shoved us. Nobody ever spit on me. And then she's saying, blah, blah, blah. I told you my mom buries elites. So she's like, <laughs> she's like, when they burn the cross in front of the house, I'm like, what are you talking about? The KKK. <sighs> she's like, yeah, they burn a cross. She's like, well, not right in front of the door. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> so it was the, the cross is like closer to the road. Doesn't matter. It matters. The kids are in the house. Yeah. But they were teaching people how to fill out the paperwork to vote. Yes. With their sixth and eighth grade or middle school education, wow. they were teaching people how to. And so the KKK burned a cross in front of the oh house. Oh, my God. And they still did it anyway. 
And they survive. That's amazing. Yeah. And so, but you think about how somehow some of that, even though they didn't tell the story, the principles got into us because my sister, you know, she used to have little signs that she kept in her car. One said, let my people go. (laughs) She had protest signs Really? Let my people go. Let That's your sister. Go. She's a politician, actually. Oh, she's the president of the city council in Mount Vernon. I have family there. Like most of my, oh, yeah, yeah, my grandma on my dad's side, they're all in Mount Vernon. Wow. Yeah, yeah. they're right there. I and you look like you could be family. I'm serious. Is your family Caribbean? Like, no, do they come from the Caribbean? They're not. As, I mean, people have they asked this before. Do and, it's like South Carolina. But I, you know what? Here's the thing. And Virginia. Well, South Carolina is another arm of my family. That's my mom's side. Hmm. But I found out that one of the big slave traders there, actually, he basically was trading and bringing Africans back and forth from Barbados yeah. to South Carolina. And I think that my family ultimately stretches back to Barbados because that's the only place where you find a lot of Weekses. Mm-hmm. And there was a Weeks owner there, you know, right. master there. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, we've, we have some family history, but we don't. It's funny because I was thinking early on when we were talking that there are some stories that we don't talk about. That's for real. That's for real. We're going to talk about that next. But before we do that, we're going to cut to a break. And so these are the stories. These are our stories on Freedom Road. People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, is uniting tens of thousands of people across the country to challenge the evils of systemic racism, poverty, the war economy, ecological devastation, and the nation's distorted morality. Will you step up and join our efforts? If you're ready to join our movement to transform the political, economic, and moral structures of our country, Text MORAL, M-O-R-A-L, to 90975, or visit poorpeoplescampaign.org to get involved. Again, that's MORAL, M-O-R-A-L, to 90975, or visit poorpeoplescampaign.org. We each have women that we look up to in our lives, and I wanted to ask you guys, whose footsteps are you following in? Like, who who do you imagine in your head when you need wisdom, when you are looking for direction, when you're saying, okay, who am I modeling myself after in this public space as I lead? Who Who is it for you? <laughs> I think probably my public space and my private space are different okay. in terms of the people, but... Uh, same in terms of the passion and the yeah. qualities. So in public, I would have to say Dorothy Height is a big shero of mine. Wow. Um, and I would say Shirley Chisholm. Mm-hmm. And Sojourner Truth has been mentioned and Harriet Tubman. Like I have this idolizing of them, I think, that I've had over the years. But as I've gotten older and been in these public spaces to kind of look back on their courage, 
they had to have so much courage to mm-hmm. do what they did at the time. And in our spaces, when we're out in public, actually, Tamika Mallory made a comment at Ecumenical Advocacy Days, the year that she spoke. And she said, if you're not feeling nervous, you know, on a regular basis, you're probably not doing this thing right mm-hmm. in terms of advocacy and, and being kind of out there on the front lines. And wow. I find that that is so true, that there's this place of, you know, that you're walking in what you're supposed to be doing, right? You're speaking truth, you're being truth, yeah. you're where God wants you to be. And yet there's this fear in some ways, because it's like, wow, this is looking a little crazy right now. But forging ahead in spite of that, right? And in spite of the looks on people's faces, in spite of what the naysayers and the people who tell you don't do it like this, do it like this and all of that. And yet being clear that God has called you to a space and doing it and moving forward with that. So I see that in Dorothy Height. I see that in Shirley Chisholm and Sojourner Truth. Can, and, can yeah. you like, because t- I know some of our, our listeners may not know who Dorothy Height is okay. or, or even Ch- Shirley Chisholm. Can you break that down? I think most of us know We've heard of Harry Tubman right. and certainly Sojourner Truth, but but who are these other more recent figures that you just talked about? Oh, sure. Dorothy Height was really one of the leaders of the civil rights movement, one of the women who was in those spaces who never got the mm. chance to be in the public phase of the movement, but certainly was a strategist. She started the what became president of the National Council of Negro Women uh, mm-hmm. that has a, a building that they bought on Pennsylvania Avenue right between the White House and Capitol Hill. Wow. And she did organizing in Mississippi with Fannie Lou Hamer, who's probably somebody else I could have called oh, wow. her name, and has just done, really believed in service and public service, worked for the YWCA and helped with their racial justice program, all of that. So she is just a shero who, for a number of years, she had the black, some people may remember the black family reunions that they had on the mall in the summer times and across the country. So she spearheaded that effort. And then Shirley Chisholm was the first African-American woman who was elected to Congress and the first to run for president back wow. in the day. In yes. The I mean, yeah, really, so. when, when we think about that, think about that, because what you just said was back when they were moving around, what they did actually took much more than even what we have to give. And we know on those front lines right now, what we have to give is like the force of a Mack truck, right. really, in order to move stuff through. Can you imagine what Dorothy Hyde had to deal with? I mean, she didn't have me to, right? Right. She didn't even have the civil rights movement to fall back on, like the gains. She was was the civil rights movement. Exactly. And I remember Gwendolyn Boyd at her funeral said that she once said that she would have been a preacher had that been available to her Hmm. during that time. And that always really struck me because we face so many challenges as preachers today, even in being recognized. Mm -hmm. And to have somebody of that commitment Mm -hmm. and passion not being able to live out her call in that way that she felt she probably would have done in this season. So it just made me think about more how important it is to try to be as faithful as I can be in the vocation of preaching and the vocation of of being a minister. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Leslie. How about either of you, Sakina and Tracy? I'm a little different in this realm of thought. If I had to 
identify one person, I would say Fannie Lou Hamer. Mm. And Fannie Lou Hamer, not just for her leadership skills, but for her absolute refusal to disconnect herself from where she had been to where people wanted her to go. So I like her truthfulness and her realness Mm -hmm. and her insistence upon staying connected to that which brought her into the struggle. If I had to name one person, and certainly there are many, it would be Fannie Lou Hamer. Mm -hmm. But what I think most of when I think of those that I am trying uh, to make proud and those that I'm trying to emulate, I think more of a kitchen table than I do of an individual. Mm. Uh, there are many gifts that I have received from several women in mm. leadership positions, some personally and some from watching and mm. some from reading the legacies of others. And so, you know, it's the strategizing ability of a Diane Nash, mm. right. it's the bold brashness of a Fannie Lou Hamer. It's the quiet strength and calculations of a Coretta Scott King. It's the resilience of my mother and my grandmother and my great-grandmother, whose names would never get called in that category, but who are responsible for everything I am. Mm. So I think more of the kitchen table. I'm from the South, and Mm. most of my training and my learning and my subliminal education of what it means to be a Black woman, what it means to be woman and what it means to be Black, Mm -hmm. and what it means to be located in certain social contexts. Most of my training around that did not happen explicitly, but Mm -hmm. happened implicitly at the kitchen table. Whether that was around the kitchen table while I'm at the stove getting my hair pressed with an iron (laughs) comb and the grown women are talking, Mm -hmm. or whether it's the women in the kitchen gathering, cooking, because we're having a family gathering, and and working out the problems of the family and of the world in the presence of girl, women, children in their way. It's the having the conversations over a meal uh, with women who can identify with things you're going through or things you're going to go through and starting mm-hmm. to plant seeds of resistance and hope in you. So I think of it more that way than I think of particular people that I want to emulate. It's more characteristic. Mm. Amen. Sakina, you want to add to that? Sure. I think everything that my sisters have said is just powerful. And, of course, Leslie and I share some of the people uh, as well in terms of Shirley Chisholm and Dorothy Height, even the Fannie Lou Hamers. I guess I'll just lift up a couple of other persons for me beyond even my mother, because I do think Every time I come in a room, I am trying to make my mom proud. Mm -hmm. And I'm thankful for the gift that she gives to our family. Even as she represents the union of Mm -hmm. my mom and dad, Uh, Mm -hmm. although my dad has gone on to be with the Lord, just that whole notion of family and what black mothers have done uh, and what she continues to do mm-hmm. even right now as she's taking care of my children while I'm here in Washington, <laughs> D.C. <laughs> uh, so I'm thankful for that. To Reverend Tracy's point about characteristics, mm-hmm. I'm also thankful for hospitality and longevity mm-hmm. and perseverance. Mm-hmm. And I see that in someone like Joyce Johnson, mm-hmm. who is the co-founder of the Beloved Community Center in Greensboro, North Carolina, who was there in 1979 when the Greensboro Massacre happened, who was mm-hmm. part of the effort 
and leadership reason, if you will, that the first Truth and Reconciliation Commission on U.S. soil was in Greensboro, North Carolina. And I'm thankful for her, her gift of hospitality, longevity, because it just didn't happen in 1979. They continue. And I say they, I mean, Mm. even her and and her husband, uh, Reverend Nelson Johnson, you know, she started out even as one of the first black students at Duke University, Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. from Richmond, uh, helping to organize the housekeeping staff at Duke, you know, as a student mm-hmm. coming to Greensboro and, and working in labor organizing to the point that, quite honestly, some folks were scared of her and mm-hmm. the community would slam its door. But she continued to fight. And there are so many people like that. But I'm thankful for that type of resilience. I'm thankful that even when I was faced with instances in my life, and one I'm thinking about when I was much, much younger, was the first time, I guess, it it, it became more public, if you will, in terms of television and what have you. And I felt so alone and so isolated that she sent for me. to come to the beloved community center. And there was a group of elders, because this is the place where the National Elders Council came from, if you will. Um, And so she sent for me to make sure I was okay. And that meant so very much because I felt so alone that I was also um, not answering my parents' calls. And when I started doing that, then that's a problem. But watching her and watching her ministry watching how they have created a hollow ground that is specific to, in some ways, Greensboro and North Carolina, but yet has such a national influence mm-hmm. where they're helping to train people at the Kellogg Foundation as they're dealing with institutional transformation as it relates to the sin of racism and things like that, impacting the global world, if you will, Mm -hmm. around these issues and continuing to walk and be a grandmother and a mother and a Mm. a wife and, you know, a spouse Mm. or what have you and continue to pour into the next generation. I think about her often. Mm. I think about her often and wanting to create spaces where other black women, particularly as they're starting out, trying to recognize who they are in God and mining out their gifts, recognizing how their stories are there so that they can know how to advocate for other people, Mm -hmm. wanting to create a safe space for them, Mm -hmm. as Mm -hmm. was done for me. See, and that's, I think, something that we don't really... Maybe I'm not sure. I mean, I, I know that there are people who are doing great mentoring right now of the next generation, but I wonder if we could even do better. I know that I get I get requests all the time. I'm looking for a mentor. I'd like for you to mentor me, that kind of thing. And I, I just think that the older generation did better with us than maybe even we are doing. And that's not something that I even planned to say. It's just it strikes me with that because you had the elders call for you. Like, I wonder how many... I'm not sure how many people we are calling for in order to care for. And if we are, great. (laughs) I'll be wrong. I'm happy to be wrong here. But let me just say, that's needed. It's absolutely needed. Mama Ruby is one of the people for me, Ruby Sales. And historically, I would say definitely it's Sojourner Truth and and Harriet Tubman for for different reasons. Harriet Tubman, because I love the fact that she was... Now, I'm, I speak on Shalom all the time, peace, right? But I love the fact that she was packing. 
I think there's something amazing in that. Like you have this black woman. I mean, and she, I think part of it is that she knew. She knew the violence that she was walking into. Right. And, you know, I'm not advocating that anybody pack. You know, I'm not doing that. But what I am saying is that there was a strength and a determination to free people. Right. Like she literally was like, look, once you're on this train, you are not turning back. You are going to go or you are going to die like right now. Right. So make your choice. You're going to go. Or you're going to die. And I find myself, I mean, my own work is, I tend to go into evangelical spaces. And I think that that for me is like a calling out of people from, in many ways, the slavery of white theological binding that happens and calling forth of people of color and also white folks who want to get set free in those spaces. So that's, you know, Harriet Tubman is one of my go-to women. But Mama Ruby, because she just never ceases to amaze me and also is an incredible source of of wisdom. Recently, in the formation of a statement, we passed it by her and, you know, she challenged us. uh, It was actually in in light of Charlottesville. She challenged us to make that statement more prophetic for all people, Mm. not just white people. And that was a scary thing to do. But she said, have courage, do it. (laughs) So so we did. You know what I mean? So I have another question for you. Let's talk about black women at work. Can we talk about black women at work? Because that was another hashtag that kind of flew by. And it was funny because my my coworkers are the ones who, who actually alerted me to it. They were like, have you seen this hashtag black women at work? So I took a look at it and I was like, oh, snap. They are telling my business. Like, you know what I mean? Like, oh my gosh, like I'm like getting healed by listening, like reading this this hashtag. And I remember watching a special on Harriet Tubman, like back in this, I think it might have been the 1970s. A woman called Moses, I think it was. Cecily Tyson played, mm-hmm. played Harriet Tubman. And I'll never forget this one scene where she was pulling a cart meant for a horse to pull. I will never forget it. And you know, when you're young, that kind of image gets stuck in your head. There was no critique of it. So I think there was something in me that said, wow, look how strong we are. She's so strong. She could pull a cart. And there's something in me that then said, I should be able to pull a cart. I want people to know I'm strong enough to pull a cart that's made for a horse. I think I've come to understand that that is a dehumanizing thing. But it is, it's one of those things I believe that black women struggle with, is the struggle to almost be superhuman, not human. And what I've come to understand is it's actually a dehumanizing expectation of black women. Do any of you struggle with that? Is that something, is it just me? I'm happy for it to just be me. But do you struggle with this? And if so, like, how do you subvert it? How do you actually manage it or move against it in your own soul? Because I know there are some black women listening to this broadcast who also struggle with that. I think we all struggle with it, don't we? Um, You're telling our business. Oh, snap, (laughs) snappity doodah. So, (laughs) but that's like, that's for real, right? 246 years, we were conditioned to think of ourselves as non-human and almost as machines or animals that could just be whipped into doing the work. So how, now I know I just, I just took it there, but how do you, how do you deal with that? Do you deal with that? So I think it's, it's a couple of things. I think that some of the strength, the strong black woman syndrome or whatever you want to call it, comes from the resolve of black women to make it, right? Mm-hmm. To survive, mm-hmm. to overcome. Yeah. And so in that sense, I think it was 
black women filtering through this lens, okay, you are not going to kill me no matter what you do, right? Mm -hmm. Like that. So that we garnered this strength. I know for myself, my kids are older now and they often are like, you never cry. Now, mind you, when I've been driving in the car with them, I'm like bawling, but I don't let them see it, right? Uh (laughs) So I'm like, I'm crying all the time. And and now that you're older, I'm happy to show you, you know? And so when they see it, they're still surprised. But it was, when they were younger, it was, you don't want them to be upset, right? It was, at least for me, it wasn't so much that I was trying to have them think of me in any certain way. It was just, I don't want to upset them that things are kind of a little crazy right now. And the purposes and how prayer plays a role in, I'm going to keep myself together until I have my moment or my space. And unfortunately for many of us, that moment didn't come when we really needed it to come. And so that plays out in, I think, certain ways. Mm -hmm. I think the other piece of what you're talking about is what we still deal with, this way in which people think that we aren't, we should not be looked at as feminine, as women, but instead that we are just workhorses that are here to serve them, right? Mm-hmm. And so this gets played out. I think in spite of uh, all of the accomplishments of Black women, that we're still not seen as women who are mm-hmm. deserving of love, who are deserving of care. Mm-hmm. who are de- And so that we're always kind of fighting against this narrative and this perspective of us, of us not being really women, but just being these animals, really, or these mules that can pull a carriage. And the devil is a liar. Can I say that one? Yes, you (laughs) can. That was not a cuss word. (laughs) You know, actually, Mama Ruby talked about that. She talked about the reality that in the South, that women were defeminized. And so because of that, gender understanding was actually very fluid because you can't work a woman and have them out in the fields working like a man like that. You can't, you don't do that to a lady. You do that to a man or you do that to an animal, but you don't do that to a lady and certainly not a white lady. You know what I mean? Right, so right. you just but brought that But they had no good. problem raping us, right? They Hello? had no problem with, mm. with sexualizing us when it wow. fit their needs. And yet, I mean, it, it, if you think about the psychology of yes. what happened, it's just really Ooh. insane, but... It is. I mean, it's insane and violent and not logical. There's no logic to it. Sakina or Tracy, do you guys want to add anything there? I just want to say that I am working hard with my own liberation (laughs) from responsibility for the world. Mm. So I do understand what you mean. I've been struggling with wording for it. Um, in a lot of spaces and a lot of places, this balance between what we are perceived to be, who we are perceived to be, and the internalization of that perception. So that even when we enter into relationships, and I don't mean our personal romantic relationships or our parental relationships, but our business relationships and our liberation relationships are structured with the wording of partnerships but they're really structured with the expectation of productivity. Mm-hmm. And that productivity mm-hmm. plays out, in my opinion, for black women in a way that commodifies our being. So you're never really sure whether or not people love you for who you are, for mm-hmm. your being, or love you because of the moment you're in, or wow. because of what you're saying to their struggle, right? Yes. And, and all of that is that card. 
So the card is not always a physical pulling on the body, but it is also the spiritual and emotional pulling that is done when we assume upon ourselves responsibility for speaking for all, for working for all, for representing all in ways that don't come for those who operate in privilege. And I don't mean social privilege. If you look at people who operate as Christians, right? When a Christian does something that is antithetical to the gospel, all Christians don't take accountability for that, right? We're very individualistic in that way because we are the privileged class. In that situation, it is our uh, fellow people of faith who suffer that fate. But when it comes to race, you know, a black woman, it's so funny, I just did an interview for a major TV station, and the reason they wanted to interview me was this question of what does it mean to be a black woman who preaches? That was the question, right? Mm -hmm. And while I was intrigued by the question and honored that I would be someone that they would speak out, the whole time I was sitting there thinking about the diversity of that question. And who am I to answer a question that says a black woman who preaches? Mm. Because I can sit here and think about a multitude of ways uh, that are not a part of my view that that plays out as well. And so in this particular interview, the person that she brought up, Doug Jones, and what's happening politically, and she heard someone say that black women were doing this work on behalf of the nation. And she said, I said to them, no, black women are doing this work on behalf of themselves. Mm -hmm. And I, I said to the interviewer, I said, you know, actually, the first person was right, mm -hmm. because Black womanhood always has done the work on behalf of the entire city. That's exactly we're right. Not, we're not individual, individual thinkers that way, right? We don't seek goals and seek rewards and seek status just for ourselves, but there is this inherent understanding that we are responsible for the village. We are the cradle bearers for the village. So much so that I come from an ancestry of Black women, just think about it, my sisters. We come from women who had such spiritual depth that they were able in the face of oppression to allow the child of the oppressor oh, to nurse at their breast. Right. right. And not just nurse, but be nurtured. Right. We felt to feel safe and to be loved even as our own children were being sold off. Jeez. That is what that card symbolizes for me. How does one come from a lineage of such spiritual death that you still find a well of compassion and love for those that you know are going to grow up to hate you? Yes. Mm. Mm when you are not even receiving that love yourself in your being or in your place. So this road to freedom is a whole road and it's a hard road because all of that has to be deconstructed, yet deconstructed in a way that we don't lose the strength of what it has brought. Mm -hmm. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast.
Thinking Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment, we find ourselves in full of protests, anger, and activist momentum. Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. So much to say here. One of my favorite new shows right now is Black Love. It's on OWN, on Oprah's network. It's funny how a TV show about black folks loving can feel subversive, but it really does. It feels like a political statement every time you get on there and you hear another couple's love story. Isn't that weird? But it's... Well... Well, (laughs) Okay. Okay, so it's it's weird in that it's not what you think should happen, but we know why. In fact, let's just speak why. Why is black love subversive? I think it's revolutionary. I mean, every single thing that we've been taught about ourselves is that we don't deserve love. We should not be loved. And so Mm. when we come together, I think it's like you have brought down strongholds and, and so many things happen in that, that it is subversive. It is mm-hmm. um, Wakanda forever. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a beautiful display, you know, yeah. in Black Panther of Black love and the richness and depth of that. Mm. Um, and so when we see it, it just does something. I think it's like a bomb in Gilead. Ooh. It heals a certain place in our souls that has been wounded and re-wounded and traumatized. That is so true. And I think the evidence of it being so revolutionary is even found in how this society has tried to legislate the breaking up of black love Mm. as it relates to uh, former Senator Daniel Patrick Monaghan and how, you know, um, even what used to be deemed as welfare came in to split up black families, if you will, Mm. and how we continue to suffer from certain cultural images from that in terms of the um, this whole notion of the black male not being in a home or what have you and, mm-hmm. and how that was a cultural piece that ended up becoming more of a legislative piece. Perhaps the reason is because black love is so revolutionary that this whole notion of us being able even to be together in a couple form mm. is that that can even help transform this world. That's right. Like even my own, my great, great, great grandmother, Leah Ballard, the last enslaved adult woman in our family, she had five husbands, five. And it's because they kept dying or being sold away. She had 17 children, but only five children left alive or in her home by the time of the end of the Civil War. So the ability even for our hearts for 246 years to attach, it did attach, but people were ripped from us. So You're right. So it is a revolutionary thing for us to come together. You know, Tracy, no joke, like one of the most healing, you know, talk about bomb and Gilead moments I had on your Facebook feed one time was when you posted pictures of you and your boo. (laughs) 
And it was so sweet. You were just sitting there at a local party. You know, I think you might have even gotten up and danced, but you were just sitting in his arms. And you even mentioned black love in that post. You might have even hashtagged it. I'm not sure. But can you tell us the story? I'd love a good love story. How did that happen? How did that, how did you come together with your boo? And, you know, and what is it that keeps the fire going? Because that fire is obviously hot. (laughs) You know, ironically, um, my boo is someone who is doing social justice work and has done it most of his life. Yeah. I went away for a retreat about uh, anti-racism work when I was still in corporate America, and I met him at that retreat. And years later, we began to see one another in less than professional ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to say that I am very much in love with him, uh, but one of the things that makes that work is that he is a man who is confident in himself. And mm-hmm. so often, uh, we find ourselves in situations where we end up not, I won't say in competition, but society has done such a number hmm. that, that we get into this role-play game that is not really necessary for the care of. So mm-hmm. I, I, I want to comment on what I heard you guys saying about, I'm real private, Lisa, but that's about all you guys <laughs> <laughs> We understand. In fact, we were sitting here giggling like schoolgirls when you were first mentioned it. Not everything is on Facebook. Um, Amen. It's hilarious. I'm thinking about this black love question in a different dynamic lately. I travel quite a bit, as do all of you. And I'm curious as to whether you've ever stopped to really give this some deeper thought. And it is the universal way, in the universal way, not just in America, the universal way that black people acknowledge one another's presence, mm. no matter where we are, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that it's always a conversation, mm-hmm. but especially in spaces that are predominantly white, mm-hmm. even if you don't know one another. Yeah, it's true. When a black person sees a black person, yes. there is a nod. Yes. Yes. There yes. is an... Yes. Our being with one another, right? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Um, and, and I've been spending some time with that because mm. I think it is one of the things that that has helped us survive, right? Mm. It's almost like this unstated code, I see you. Right. That's right. Right? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. You are seen. And it's a great manifestation of Black love for me. Mm. That nowhere, I, I spend a lot of time in space where I'm the only person that's black. And and what's interesting to me is I don't experience that with all people of color. Right. I only experience it with black people. That's really real. Whether it's the brother on the corner or the brother in the boardroom, whether it's the sister in the beauty shop or the sister in the (laughs) C-suite. There's an acknowledgement that happens you know what I'm saying? It's yeah. so true. Is it just me or do you guys experience No. It? No, no, no. It's so true. You, you're, you're right. And it, I would even say in those moments, like I've, there have been times where I have been concerned about my own safety. And yeah. there, that nod 
let me know somebody has my, my back. back. <laughs> it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. Yeah. You feel yeah. me? But what is that? Because even if it's not an African-American, mm. even if it's an African, even if we don't speak the primary mm. same language, this happens, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The acknowledgement of more humanity. Mm-hmm. I think it's about acknowledging dignity. At least for me, I had that experience just recently walking through the airport in St. Louis. I mean, coming off of that pilgrimage that I talked about earlier, and I felt really unsafe. You know, I mean, you come off of an experience like that and you realize you are vulnerable wherever you are because all kind of stuff can happen mm-hmm. as a person of color when you are surrounded by people of European descent in America. It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with whether or not they had a bad day (laughs) or whether or not they have something they need to get off their shoulders or whatever. An African-American man was walking towards me in the airport. And of course, we did the not. You know what I mean? It's kind of a it's an I see you, but it's an I see your dignity. Yes. That's what it is. And I got your back. (laughs) (laughs) At least that's how I receive it. No, that's right. That's right. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) I got you. Yeah. Well, Leslie, actually, I'm glad you, you, you spoke up here. So you are raising some powerful and beautiful children. Yeah. I wondered, what is it that your mother passed on to you that you pass on to them, you know, in order to help them to navigate this world? That's a good question. As Tracy back, oh, we were talking about the kitchen table, and I have this visual. So I'm a Yankee. I grew up in New York, and my mom is from the South, and she's one of nine siblings who grew to adulthood. I think my grandmother had 14 children, but nine survived to adulthood. Wow. And my aunt Dot, we would all gather in her kitchen. And so I've joked with my, maybe half jokes with my cousins that one day I wanted to open a restaurant called Aunt Dot's Kitchen, right? Because it was all of that, right? And so I feel like uh, my mom had six sister, there was six girls and three boys, right? Mm -hmm. And so my aunts, my mom, they're all, you know, I feel like I'm an outgrowth in many ways of who they were and who they are. And my mom is a woman of great, great faith, Mm -hmm. you know, lived faith. I saw her live out her faith. So she wasn't Mm -hmm. so much quoting scripture, although uh, whenever my sister and I acted out, she would always use uh, when I was a child, I speak as a child, I act, you know, from (laughs) 1 Corinthians, it's kind of a weapon, like get yourself together. (laughs) Oh my God, that's Uh, hilarious. Right? And so, (laughs) but she, you know, I remember so many moments, but one in college where I was trying to go back to school and and there were some financial issues and some money came through. And right in our kitchen, she dropped to her knees and just started Mm -hmm. praising God. And it was just a formative kind of moment. I remember one of my uncles died who lived upstairs from us. We lived in an apartment building. He lived upstairs for for my whole life. And so he and my mom were back to back and Uncle Jimmy and he, we were really close. And, but when he died, she just gathered this strength that I knew it was the Lord, to be Mm -hmm. honest with you. Mm -hmm. I knew God had, that she had been praying and God had answered her prayer for her to be able to walk through that. Two of my other aunts, two of her sisters died back to back. Aunt Dot, who I just mentioned, 
um, and my Aunt Mildred. So my Aunt Mildred died Christmas Day of 1993. My aunt died February 21st, 1994. They were both in the hospital at the same time in New Jersey and New York. And my mom was going back and forth. And in between that, my dad had a stroke in that January. Mm, And so, you know, I remember seeing my mom have this moment of just like, I, you know, this is too much. And then something happened in the midnight hour. I promise Mm. you she was praying Mm. and it just broke through and Mm. she was able to just gather the peace of God, right? And so just in trial after trial, in testing, she just has this strength about her. You know, I I laugh at her, a quick story. She's a deacon, and so she was visiting with somebody. I may have told you this, you know, I don't know. She was visiting somebody who was in the hospital that had called the church. She's going to visit, and the woman is in a coma, Right. Uh-huh. So it's in, she lives in New York. So we live in, uh, from Mount Vernon, Money Earning. Shout out Mount Vernon. Um, <laughs> and so she's going to the Bronx, right? And so if you've ever been in the Bronx, you know, you can get lost and turned around. It can be a traumatic thing. So my mom is telling me this long story about how she got lost in the Bronx for so long and she couldn't find the hospital, blah, 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 blah. Like, so I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know how you listen to yeah, your mom yeah. and you're being respectful. Well, she says, when I finally got to the hospital, I prayed for the woman. She opened her eyes and blah, blah, blah. And then she goes back and she's talking about, you know, how she was lost. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm sorry. Didn't you say the lady was in a coma? She's like, yeah. And I'm like, so you you buried the lead in this whole thing. Of this story. Like, the praise report is the woman was in a coma. You prayed. She opened her eyes. Oh, my God. And she's like, well, I don't know if she'd opened them before. I'm like, okay. Mom. Like, I think it's because of the grace of God, right? Like, that she knew that wasn't her, so she's not out selling. I can pray, you know, but she's selling a prayer cloth. But she just (laughs) knows that God is ultimately in charge. And I think in raising my children, that's some of what has informed me that I I have known I've done, you know, done it by myself. And although I've always had a lot of support, I've not always had a lot of help, but I've had a lot of help too. But do you know what I mean? Like there've been moments when it's been, there's been a lot of struggle. And today's the last day of my son as high school. He graduates on June 5th. And there's this way, and a friend of mine, I was just saying, I've been kind of emotional and he's going to college, you know, it's just, but it's like, it's this way that God has been so present for me and raising them. And in those moments when I didn't know how ends were going to be made, financial struggles, just, just all kinds of things that have been kind of thrown our way. It's okay. You can cry. I see it. I see the tears. It's coming. Um, And I'm trying not to, but God, I mean, God has just been just such a powerful presence. And my kids, I've tried to share my faith with them. And so we, after I got divorced, I started praying with them every night. Somebody actually recommended, she said, gather them and talk. And we started praying together every night. Mm -hmm. And I would turn the lights out and I would ask them about their day. And I would ask them to say one thing that they are grateful for. And then we would pray together Mm. and just how that has shaped them to not only know that they could trust me, but to trust God. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. And just, I mean, so many different ways that that has just 
you know, it sounds almost cliche, I guess, churchy in some ways, but it's just been so real and tangible, I think, for us. And I think Mm -hmm. that they have some seeds deposited in them from the village, from Mm -hmm. aunties and uncles and who've prayed for them and who've stepped in Mm -hmm. when they needed somebody to step in. My son, when he needed kind of somebody Mm -hmm. as a male figure to step in that, that has been available. And one more story, because in that my mom <laughs> once told me about my grandmother um, working in the fields in South Carolina. And one of my cousins says that the sun is closer to the earth in Sally, South Carolina, than it is in any other place <laughs> in the world. Because wow. it just is hot, you know, it oh, just gets Lord. really, really hot. And so my mom said it was this one particular stretch of heat And they were outside. They were sharecroppers. They were outside and they were doing, you know, whatever. And she looked up to the sky and she yelled out as if God could hear her. Lord, are you going to burn us up? Are you going to burn us up out here? Wow. And my mom said, I promise you, it got cooler, right? (gasps) So did it actually get cooler or was it just the peace of God that allowed them to continue? I don't know. I I think it got cooler. I think it got cooler, too. I do. I think God listened. I think God listened. (laughs) Wow. But that kind of relationship that you can shout out to God and God hears you, I think is what I've gotten from my mother and my grandmother, my family. Thanks so much, Leslie. Thank you for that. So, Sakina, you are Director of Faith Affairs at Center for Responsible Lending, and that means you know something about money. (laughs) (laughs) And let me just tell you, all the black women listening could use a little, like, uh, counsel on some money, right? Like, And let me tell you, so one of the things that has been kind of blowing me away recently in the last year because I started my own business, and it's the first time in my entire life, my whole life, well, maybe not like since 14, my very first jobs were as were in the restaurant, you know, sphere. But then all of my jobs ever since then, in terms of like adult work life, have all been in the nonprofit sphere. And so but this is the first time when I've actually owned something, right? So I literally own the business Freedom Road LLC, right? So a consultancy. And it's it's also one of the first times I actually have not been so concerned about money. I'm doing okay. And I've had to learn. And nobody really, we don't talk about money in my family. In our family, we did not talk. Meanwhile, most of my white friends, they are literally getting like lessons on how to balance a checkbook and how to, how to save for retirement in junior high around their kitchen table, right? Like they are... So what is it that we can learn? What is it that you can pass on to us black women that we need to know about money and how it works in order for us to be able to exercise some of that dominion that God gave to all of us as human beings? Sure, sure. It's interesting that you talk about what white folks do at their kitchen tables. Yeah. Because I I realize that that is a, a reality. And I realize that, you know, as black women or women in general, I'll say we carry two thirds of the student loan debt of this country. Black women make 63 cents on the dollar to white males and 73 cents to white females. So there's this pay equity piece as well as this lack of wealth, if you will, and and this whole debt. It's really still 63. And that's, Um, I was thinking, I was thinking in 2018. And from 2004 to 2014, 
the median income for black women went down to a little bit more than than $34,000 a year. That is insane. It is. It is. It is. And I think about that because, like, you know, I, I live in North Carolina. I do national work, but I live in North Carolina because then for me in North Carolina, right, I'm still, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm just starting out. My husband and I are, are, are raising two little ones together. We have two older ones, but we're raising two little ones together. And so that means then if the pay was the same, or just comparable, yeah. mm-hmm. I could have nine more months of child care. Right. Oh. I could have seven more months of mortgage payment, right? Wow. I could have I could have like it could be that's a year of tuition. So for, just for pay your equity that's itself. In North Carolina. Would, if North Carolina wow. black women, yes, absolutely. That's how much more we could have to provide for our kids that we love so much. Right. right. And so um so it, it, it does mean something. But I think I, I do want to talk some though about Mm-hmm. This notion of having a conversation mm-hmm. and go back to Stacey Abrams, because I think what she did was very revolutionary. Mm-hmm. She did not run away. The system was designed to have us not have as much wealth. That's right. right? If you look at land grants, if you look at the GI Bill and various things that where white folks got more of a jump start, if you will, in terms of education being provided for them in terms of home loans, if you will, and the like, you saw that we did not have access to that. Hmm. So it's not surprising that white folks have... Wealth on average, $141,000 or a little bit more than that. Latinos, uh, about 13500 13, And we have, in terms of our wealth, on average, $11,000. You know, uh, so mm-hmm. what then does it mean, given the fact that the system was set up and designed to make it such that we are not owners? Mm-hmm. What does it mean then for us to begin to talk about it? And to have those kitchen table conversations so that we can either pull our resources together to own more together, to maintain what we already have. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I was um, doing a workshop with uh, some black preachers and um, members of the North Carolina HBCU Leadership Roundtable and the leader of the North Carolina HBCU Leadership Roundtable, Andrea Harris, another powerful black female mentor Mm -hmm. of mine. Mm -hmm. Uh, She said, you know, I realize these are the two institutions that we have, HBCUs and black churches. Mm -hmm. What does it mean then for us to retain that which we have that's doing such a great job? You know, Bennett Mm -hmm. and Spellman, the two black female HBCUs, produce more than half of all black women that go on to get their doctorates in the field of the sciences. What does that mean that we have these institutions that are so productive, but we're not giving to them or about to lose them What does it mean then that we're not talking to our young people or our kids about how we as a family can own certain things? Uh, I think one of the most transformative things that my parents did for me, and I will say for my brother also, is that they actually did sit down at the table with the flip chart. I don't know where they got this flip chart from. I have no (laughs) idea. Oh, my gosh. It was never in our house. (laughs) Maybe for Mayfield Memorial Missionary Baptist Church. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I think my daddy did. Yes, yes. With this flip chart. And went over my father and mother's vision for our family. What? In terms of... The financial vision? 
financial vision and how the two of us played a role in that vision and what they saw us doing in terms of our feel like what our disciplines would be. Now, oh I was supposed God. to be a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. But at any rate, but they there was a vision. Everybody and, do that. And, Just and do there, that. And oh there was this whole notion that yeah. we are all in this together. We all play a role. That what you're doing right now, we were probably like, I was maybe, you know, early high school. He, My brother was middle school. And it was an understanding that we left that kitchen table with yes. that we had to do certain things, our job as young people, to get our education so that we can play a role in how our family was going to have wealth in the future. And even right now, my, my dad is with the Lord, but we still talk as a family, even about then what does that mean for wow. the grandkids? Now, we still have made bad decisions and still are, quite honestly, you know, crippled with debt from Duke University yes. Divinity School and <laughs> even some, some of my degree from Howard, you know, but, but even... Even so, we're able then to have the conversation. It's not something that we don't talk about. It's not shame written. It's not shame written. It's not shame written. It's something that is more so empowering. And we realize then that we have to do some things to make sure that this next generation Mm -hmm. is able to have, be it in terms of not selling our parents' home. Mm -hmm. You know, and making sure that we continue to have homes Mm -hmm. for whatever member of the family to live in, not just our own nuclear family, but, you know, even our extended family, if you will. But also, and I'll lift up one story of a young black female that she talked about her understanding as she graduated. I think she was a graduate of North Carolina Central University. She talked about that she made the decision after getting out of college with, you know, a little close to $50,000 worth of, well, no, well, a little less than $50,000 worth of debt, if you will, that she was going to live with her parents for a while. She was going to pay her student loan. But then after the due date, she was going to wait a couple of days. And this is what she did. She waited a couple of days and then she made a second payment so that she could, you know, really get that principle down. And she continued to do so. And she's gone around to really talk about this with other students currently in college about how do you really handle this? And how do you also say no to some of these student loans? Because it's really not income. This is stuff that you have to pay back. And so it's also, it's a change of the mindset, but it's also knowing how the game works, if you will. And I thought that was so interesting. How does the game Work. How does the game work? Well, <laughs> Tell us how it works. Yeah. Well, part of this is, first off, we got to make sure that the Prosper Act that's currently in Congress that Representative Virginia Fox is trying to pass, which will cut money from HBCUs, which will eliminate all student loan forgiveness programs. <gasps> it's in, uh, wait, this is in the hopper this, right now? This is in the hopper is right now. And coming she's, to the floor? She is trying to have it come to the floor in June. That's what we're hearing right now. Oh and so we're really pushing against this. Um, she's gotten a lot of money from for-profit colleges and universities. And so it actually will also um, make it such that for-profit schools that are able to get more of our tax dollars. So we want to make sure that legislatively, in terms of our advocacy work, that we stop efforts like that. We 
want to make sure that we lift up efforts that are going on in states to make sure that the states themselves can hold for-profit colleges accountable mm-hmm. since they're going around, um, you know, grease in the hands of Betsy DeVos and, and mm-hmm. Representative Fox and, and, and the like, if you will. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure that they're able to hold for-profits accountable. We want to make sure that there is a student bill of rights, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. And we ultimately also want to push for making sure that our student loan debt is dischargeable in bankruptcy. I think it's interesting mm-hmm. that um, that you know, some millionaires and billionaires are able to write off even like yachts and things like that in bankruptcy, but we can't write off our student loan. Like that is not something that can be rolled up into that. Uh, And so some of this is for us to kind of start paying attention to the really um, gritty details of stuff that we don't like to talk about Mm -hmm. that seems sometimes too complicated, but quite honestly, that we know is going on. I mean, some of us know people, right, that have had their Social Security checks garnished because they got to pay back the student loans that they took out to to help their grandkids go to college. And so Mm -hmm. to be able to have those conversations and to work legislatively, but also work in our families and work in our alumni or alumni, you know, since I'm a Bennett Bell associations to also work with the students there Mm -hmm. to to talk about these things. Mm Wow. Well, thank you. I mean, seriously, I feel like, well, look, if we just took your advice, got a flip chart. Everybody gets a flip chart. (laughs) It's a great idea. I'm serious. But okay, let me tell you why I like this so much. What I love about it is that it breaks from the individualistic understanding of money and success that we are taught to emulate as African-Americans when we think of what it means to be American, what it means to be successful. We think white because white equals money equals American. And so, but white folks might do that. But but we actually do, we have a communal, our culture is communal. So why not make money communal as well? And I love that you, that your your father made the family responsible for the family's Prospering. My father and that's, mother. And I, I mother, bro, forgive me, forgive me. Black, that's right, black girl magic. Mom, thank you, mom. That's really, that's real, that's real. So I love that. Yeah. These are our stories on Freedom Road. So I have one last question, and this is like a lightning round. <laughs> before we sign off. And, and Tracy, thank you so much for holding tight. I'm going to go with you first here. What is the best black girl vacation you've ever had? Oh, wow. Really, we're coming up on June. We need to, look, we've been talking about carriages. We need to let go of the carriage. What does it look like for us to actually not only let go, like literally like cut the tie of that carriage? And what is the best black girl vacation you've ever had? The best black girl vacation I ever had was a rites of passage trip I planned with my daughter mm. when she turned 18. Uh, we cruised the Mediterranean for 21 mm. days. Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> yes. Wow. Yeah. So Making we, we went note. to Barcelona. Yes. Yeah. By the time my daughter graduated from high school, my marriage was over. And one of my internal goals had always been what my father had given me. My parents uh, were together until my father died, but mm-hmm. uh, my father had always given me this sense of self because one of his things, one of his things was, uh, I don't want you to ever fall for some knucklehead 
because he did something for you that you thought nobody else could do. Um, And so I I purposed when she turned 18. She had always been wanting to go out of the country, and I said, I'm just going to make this happen. So we went to Barcelona. We stayed a week in Barcelona enjoying that culture, and then we got on a ship, and we cruised for 21 days, Mm. just me and my daughter. So Mm. that's my my, my best black girl vacation so far. But it's funny you say that because I'm feeling, I can't articulate it and we're at the end of the show, but I'm feeling this trauma of being a black woman very heavily right now. Mm. Um, And Mm. I just yesterday booked a villa uh, in the mountains of Montego. Mm. Um, And I don't even know who I'm going to invite into that villa. Can we go? (laughs) I booked the entire villa. uh, People always call me and say we're going on vacation, we got to take a vacation, and I've been so busy. And last night, I booked a villa with a private pool that overlooks the ocean. Wow. Um, and, you know, and private cook and driver and security guard wow. in Montego Bay. And it's a villa that's owned by a black husband and wife couple mm-hmm. who I'm told crafted this space, particularly as a getaway for those who do this kind of work, Mm. right? So it's beautiful, and I'm looking forward to it. And it's so funny that I was looking forward to it because I wanted to get away so far that nobody would call my name, not in an airport, (laughs) not in a grocery store, not in a car. I didn't want to hear my name. Wow. And as soon as I booked it, the owner of the villa sent me a message and said, are you the Tracy Black and that's the preacher? Uh, <laughs> and I was like, damn. <laughs> but they don't even live there, right? They live in D.C. And this place where they have it set up so that, you know, they can have a massage therapist come to you every day and do scrubs and wow. um, private massages. Mm. And they have a yoga instructor that will come and do yoga and private cook and I'm just I booked the space because I had a free week Mm. and I said I will decide later Mm -hmm. what kind of rejuvenation I need in that space Mm -hmm. but it's probably going to be black black girl space I don't know if it's going to be my daughter and my play daughters Mm -hmm. and my mother or whether it's going to be women that I know are trying to push through exhaustion right now Mm -hmm. I don't know yet Wow. Well, bless you. Seriously, bless you in that. Wow. I think all of us are salivating. (laughs) Text us. (laughs) But I mean, that's I love what you're doing. You're taking care of yourself. You just went the distance to take care of yourself. That in itself is modeling for us. So thank you even literally for sharing that. Thank you. I guess I would say for the past couple of years, since my husband, you know, we had a communion marriage when we first got married and now we do again. He serves a congregation in Ohio and I'm based in in North Carolina with the children. So my mom Mm -hmm. and and my two kids, we've been going to one of the beaches around Hampton 
(laughs) actually, for the past couple of years. And Mm -hmm. it's been really great. Uh, One for the kids. The kids enjoy it. There's a lot of free activities that can go on that that the Hampton area uh, has for kids. But then also it's just a great time for me and my mom, particularly since when my father passed, the Lord had it where I had a position with with the Christian Church Disciples of Christ where I was the anti-racism pro-reconciliation minister and had the Southeast as my territory. And so she used to go with me a lot mm-hmm. of places and it was very healing. And one of the things, as we know, with grief is that it comes back. Mm-hmm. And I found that it's a nice break for both of us. Mm-hmm. And it is remembering a time where I think she was going through a lot of healing. Father passed very suddenly as well as I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's the memory that we can get through everything. I will also say that I am in the process of trying to have a for real black girl vacation. I've been invited to some vacations that I couldn't go to mm-hmm. or go on, um, but I have planned one for the fall, and hopefully that will happen where it will not be any kids. But I don't, I don't know for sure. Y'all pray for me. Amen. We will. We will. <laughs> um, so I confess that this is an area where I am trying to do better. Okay. I you know, have most of my vacations, and I use the term loosely, have been around workspace, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and even this summer, I'm doing a, a panel in Brazil. And so I'm like, yeah, I get to go to Brazil, but I, I'm sort of working a yeah. lot of <laughs> most of it. The beach is always like, if I can even get to the beach for like 48 hours and Ooh. just watch the waves go in and out, it yeah. does something for my soul. Yeah. So, I am looking for that, and I really am trying to do better. You know, for me, it's always been, or it has been at least for the past, you know, 18 years, me and the kids, right, right. are going, you know, and, and negotiating around that. Although I did go to Paris for my a milestone birthday. Oh, um, God. <laughs> and I'm trying to get back to Paris because... That's Paris great. is fabulous in every way, in my mind. And so so for this summer, I'm trying to get to the beach and, and find space to do that. And then I have been better at having massages and facials and, and getting little pockets of a breather, a breather whenever I could. That's whenever important. Whenever I can work it in. Yeah, just some time to say I'm important and let mm-hmm. me do something for myself. And she helps to encourage others to do something. I do. Ah! I do. I really do because I, I recognize that's important. So for me, because I haven't always had even the financial means to do a lot, yeah. I started doing this once a day, once a week, once a month. So once a day, I do something little. Oh, that's so good. So, so which is why I was so traumatized by Starbucks, the whole situation, oh. because my once a day was going to Starbucks sitting, even if for a minute, or just getting that coffee and just taking a moment to just mm. breathe. And so then once a week, I would do something a little bit more, like either go mm-hmm. to a movie or something like that. And then once a month, I would do like a mani-pedi or whatever. So yeah. this got me through my divorce. Once a day, once a week, once a month just to say breathe some life into yourself right sit on a park bench and watch the sky if you want like just something to just 
say that God made you too, right? To and, breathe. And to breathe yeah. and to recognize that you are important and deserving of time. A friend asked me just yesterday, how is your breathing? And I, I started <laughs> to text, but I, I was driving so much. I said, I get to finish. I was like, oh, she just knows I am not doing well. <laughs> She's about to call me out because, you know, there's just been some intensity for us, I think, who do a lot of That's advocacy right. work these, well, gosh, since January 2017, but don't get me started on that. Um, But I think, you know, the thing that will help us to sustain it, and I'm really preaching to myself, is these moments of just breathing and living and knowing that ultimately God, this is God's work, right? And we are not God. Mm. So Mm. it's like... I love that. Get I over love yourself. <laughs> I love the once a day, once a week, once a month. I used to have that also with Sabbath. I would have like a Sabbath thing once a day or or you know, my quiet time. My once a week was a day with God. My once a month was a a retreat of silence. But I love how you've actually turned that into like mini vacation times, like mini, mini breath, just, just simply breathing times. And I would actually advocate adding a once a year time at a villa. (laughs) One that has specifically been created for you. In Montego Bay. Hey. I love it. I love it. Yeah. It's funny. I have to say, so for me, the best black girl vacation I ever had was actually also connected to work. But I actually did. I went to South Africa a week early mm. in order to be able to do safari. So we did safari. Me and three other black women. I knew one of them really well, no, two of them really well, and just met another one. And we told we told our life stories mm. in the car rides mm. up and back, which is a long freaking way. <laughs> way but it was so rich and then honestly there were the giraffes and the elephants and the lions they were just like icing you know because right. really what it was about was the connection yeah black girl wonderful. connection i love south africa yes so these are the conversations that leaders have on the road to justice this is freedom road podcast The Freedom Road podcast is recorded at the studios of the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and common action toward a more just world. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. We invite you to listen again. New episodes drop on the first day of each month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road.